Chapter 86 After I had calmed down enough to reapply my mentally stable mask again, I headed downstairs for a cup of tea. I know it isn't going to fix everything, but sometimes, the ritualistic process of boiling the water, steeping the tea, and listening to the clink-clink-clink of the spoon hitting the side of the mug is soothing all on its own, even without having to actually drink the tea. Hey, I hear from behind me. Dawn really couldn't have picked a worse time. We need to talk. Do we? I scathe, knowing full well that we do need to talk, but that isn't going to stop me from adopting the annoying little sister act beforehand to try to delay the inevitable. Yes, Dawn steps closer to me, plucks the mug out of my hands, and gestures for me to sit on the barstool on the other side of the kitchen counter. Reluctantly, I do as I'm told. Look, it's been a rough few years, for everyone, I'm sure, and I'm really grateful to be in a position where I can weather out the storm with relative ease, Dawn starts. Judging by the even, measured way she speaks, she's probably been practicing this speech in the mirror or to David or Bertie as there's no way she could think of this on the spot. Not even Dawn is capable of being this mentally stable. But it would have been so much easier if you were actually around. I dash, I start to interject, about to ask if we could possibly have this conversation another time as I wasn't feeling well, but Dawn stops me. Let me finish, Dawn holds up one silencing finger, pausing to confirm my quietening, then continuing, having you pull away and isolate yourself, not just from me, from everyone, didn't make the years any harder, but it didn't make it any easier, okay? Refusing to talk to us? Not calling us back? I mean you didn't talk to us much after you left for New York anyway, but in the past few years, you've just gotten more and more distant. What is that all about, Daphne? You are still a member of this family, whether you like it or not. You're my youngest sister, too, and I worry about you. I didn't mean to make you worry, I tell her, surprisingly honestly, I just needed space. You could have told us that. Dawn points out, you don't need to run away to New York and ignore us for two decades to do that. What's so important that you had to hide away? We already know that you're gay, what's next, are you trans, too? Because you know we will accept you either way. Although Daisy might have a problem if you change your name to one that doesn't start with a D, but dash. I'm not I lied about my job, I confess. I hadn't meant to, but somehow the words are tripping over themselves trying to get out of my mouth. Somehow, it's as if telling someone for the first time, namely Velma, made it much, much easier to tell another person even if I had been actively lying to them for the longest time. I'm not ready to tell them the other secret, the Matthew-shaped secret, just yet, but maybe one day. Maybe one day I'll be strong enough, brave enough. But for now, I settle for I'm not a private hedge fund manager. 
Oh. Well, that was far less of a reaction than I was expecting. I'm a journalist, I continue, have been since, forever, probably. That makes sense, Dawn replies, taking a sip of the tea she had stolen from me, that seems much more like something you would believably do, career-wise. She turns to me, do mom and dad know? No. Do you want me to keep it a secret from them? Dawn asks, surprisingly chill with the idea of keeping secrets from our parents. She is my sister, I suppose. We're supposed to be a five-person team against our parents first, and then a seven-person team against the rest of the world. I had forgotten what that felt like in the two decades where I saw myself as a spy infiltrating their group. No, actually, it's about time I told them the truth, I reply, keep it quiet until then, though, okay? I want to tell them myself. Of course, Dawn nods, whatever you need, just give me a shout. Thank you, I smile at her for what I realize is the first time in a long time. I also realize that I never apologized, and so add, I'm sorry. For everything, by the way. Do you know how long I've been waiting for you to say that? Dawn asks, tears pricking the corner of her eyes as she beams widely. She has always been the crybaby of the family crying at every sappy moment in every film. She places the mug down on the counter to open up her arms for me, come here. I step into her embrace, wrapping my arms across her torso like a seatbelt. Neither of us let go. This is weird, I comment, still not letting go. Yep, Dawn rubs a circle on my back and pats my shoulder twice, let it linger anyway. Gross. I know. All you have to do, Dash Amina said, placing a little bag of something that looks a lot like herbs in my pocket, deliver this. Don't lose it. The bag isn't big, barely bigger than those plastic bags you get at a bank for change, but it seemed to burn a hole in my pocket from the guilt of even carrying it. I knew it was just cannabis, and that the likelihood of me getting stopped was astronomically low in this town, but something about it was setting off a bunch of alarm bells in my mind. Despite my sweaty palms and my heartbeat thundering in my ears, I tried to play it cool, I'm not an idiot. Sure, because joining a gang when you're the one kid who's on the Ivy League track out of here is the best idea ever. Bobby said sarcastically, rolling her eyes. Amina didn't say anything, but I did see her glance at me sideways, an unspoken question in her eyes. I hadn't told anyone other than Bobby why I actually wanted to be part of the gang. It wasn't intentional, it just hadn't come up, and now definitely isn't the best time to tell them. You're in a gang, I pointed out to Bobby trying to deflect off of me. Bobby's eyes shifted past me, focusing on Brandon talking to Ralphie a little way away, that's different. Ah.
Something was going on there, wasn't there? Are you guys ready to go? Brandon asked as he approached us. We nodded. Cool, let's ride. Obviously, with this being my first delivery, they weren't going to let me do it on my own. That didn't mean they were going to hold my hand every step of the way, though. Bobby, Ralphie, and Brandon all held back, trying their absolute darndest to be inconspicuous by hiding behind various objects on the street. I don't know who exactly they were trying to hide from, though, since they were doing a terrible job of it. If Brandon hid behind a lamppost, already a terrible idea, I should mention, given the relative slimness of the lamppost and the relative not-slimness of Brandon, then Bobby and Ralphie would crowd around him, making an already awful hiding spot worse. If Ralphie hid under a bench, then Brandon and Bobby squeezed under it with him. If Bobby hid in a bush, Brandon and Ralphie would pile on top of her, causing them all to end up with thorns in their sides and giving away their hiding spot thanks to their stream of swear words I daren't repeat. Idiots, Amina mumbled, smiling to herself as she walked a few steps behind me. She seemed to be the brains of the operation, from what I could tell. Brandon may technically be the leader of the gang, with a lot of the primary ideas coming from him but it was Amina who filled in the gaps between reality and fantasy. She was the one who formulated plans, who decided which items were worth selling, who they were worth selling to, that kind of thing. It was classic patriarchy. Bobby, on the other hand, was the middle-class kid in the wrong crowd. She wouldn't be out of place amongst the girls Daphne had recently taken a liking to, I swear I wasn't stalking her, I had just seen her around school dash, but she seemed much more at ease here. Ralphie, though, he could give two shits about where he was at any given time. You could ask where's Ralphie, and you could get anything ranging between on the school kitchen's roof, dumpster diving with the raccoons, and swimming in the ocean. He was never where he was actually supposed to be, though. After a few streets of the aforementioned shenanigans, Amina pointed out a house, a little way up ahead. Even if she hadn't, it was a little hard to miss, while every house on the street was quiet and still, this house had drunk, or high, presumably, people spilling out of various doors and windows. Every light in every window was on, except for one bedroom upstairs, where I could see the silhouettes of two people in a suggestive embrace. With one cursory glance back to Amina, who nodded encouragingly, I approached the door tentatively and knocked three times. Almost immediately, the door opened, revealing a skinny white girl I recognized as a senior in my high school at the door. Behind her, I could see a corridor full of more drunk teenagers milling about, some of them making out, others crossing the threshold of a PG rating straight into an 18. Who are you? The girl asked, if you're here for the party, juniors aren't invited. I'm Brandon's friend, I said, 
hoping that would be enough information to convey why I was there without having to outright say it, just in case she wasn't the person I was supposed to be talking to. So, you have a delivery for me, the girl asked, pulling a cigarette out of the box in her hands. I nodded mutely. Placing the unlit cigarette in her mouth, she pulled a wad of cash out of her back pocket, well, out with it then. I held out my hand as Amina had instructed me to, money first. The girl rolled her eyes, but placed a couple of crumpled notes in my outstretched hand. She tapped her foot impatiently as I spent an uncomfortably long amount of time counting the notes to make sure the right amount was there. My hands shaking slightly, I handed her the bag. As she shut the door, she bid farewell with a sarcastic, pleasure doing business with you, kid. The door barely clicked shut before I turned and hightailed it off the porch, wiping my sweaty palms down on my jeans. Bobby was the first to accept me into the gang's ranks, slapping my back and congratulating me on my first delivery as soon as I reached the group, well done. Ralphie smiled at me, but offered no other praise, while Amina gave me pointers on how to count cash faster. Brandon, however, took a slightly different approach. He pulled out a bottle of vodka from goodness knows where, took a swig, then turned to us, Kyle from Bio is having a party at his house. We should celebrate Velma's initiation into the gang by crashing it. I hesitated slightly as Brandon turned to me, expecting an answer. Amina leaned in close to whisper quietly, if you don't want to, just say. I shook my head at her subtly. It'll be fun, Bobby reassured me, mistaking me for refusal. She jostled my shoulder slightly, Brandon will make sure of that. Ah. Message received, loud and clear, going to the party will strengthen my link to the rest of the gang. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, I nodded, finally, accepting the bottle of vodka from Brandon and choking down a cough as I took a swig of my own, let's party. Chapter 87 So, mum broaches at the dinner table, this is Daphne's last meal with us. With a sudden startle, I realize she's right. In the mess with Velma, I had forgotten that my flight back to New York is tomorrow morning. Oh, right, yes. I stammer out, sorry I can't stay for Christmas dinner with you guys, but, you know what works like sometimes. Do they really need a private hedge fund manager that much? David asks, taking a sip from his wine glass, surely someone in your position can just ask for a few extra days off? Well, actually, I cleared my throat, trying to build up the courage to say the words. Dawn flashes me an encouraging smile, gently nudging my leg with her foot. I'm not a hedge fund manager, I'm a journalist. For now, anyway, there is a very real threat of me being laid off right now. With the words finally out of my brain and onto the dining table, I pick up my own glass, 
swirling the yellowish liquid around the glass before downing it in on go. Looking at each person on the table, there seems to be quite a range of reactions, from Mum's shock to David's indifference to Dad's confusion. Bertie's hunger, too, if you count him peeking his head out from under the table. Dawn is the first to break the silence, clapping her hands together, that's great, Daphne. Isn't it, guys? She's smiling as she asks the last bit, but the underlying threat is still there in case anyone has anything bad to say. Maybe she is truly the protector of the family. How long have you been a journalist? David asks, mostly out of politeness judging by the boredom in his voice. Pretty much since I graduated college. That long? Mum pipes in, you've been lying to us that whole time? Why? I don't know, I reply honestly. I tuck my hands, jittery and fidgety, under my thighs, out of sight. It was a long time ago when I started lying, so I can't remember. At some point, it was just too late and too weird to turn back and tell the truth, so I kept it up. How? Dad starts, how are you, then? Financially? George. Mum warns him. Not great, if I'm honest, I reply honestly, ignoring Mum's protest about not discussing finances at the table, I'm not going to ask you for money, though, unless I absolutely need to. I respect it, I respect it, Dad nods. He has no further questions, by the looks of things. Neither does Mum, nor David, surprisingly. Don must have warned him about asking me too many questions. Weirdly, this conversation is weirdly reminiscent of my coming out. I had built up so much anxiety and stress around the event that I chickened out a bunch of times until I finally sent them all an email about it. In return, I had received a generally positive email from Mum, signed off as all of them, but in the most likely case, it was just Mum, knowing her, professing unconditional love and support. The rest of dinner passes without much further incident, and after clearing the table, I find myself going back upstairs to finish off the last of my work. Before I fully realize what I'm doing, I pull my phone out of my pocket and open up Instagram onto my conversation with Velma. I want, so much, to tell her what happened, to tell her how it felt, to tell her everything, but that argument I had with her is still playing over and over in my mind. Returning my phone to my pocket, I turn back to my laptop and try to focus once again on the article I had been writing. Kyle from Bio turned out to be another junior who lived in the estates, namely the poorest part of Crystal Cove. Based purely on an economical standpoint, me and Mum were much closer financially to the estates than the faraway world of wealth that Daphne and Fred inhabited. It was a breath of fresh air, or rather beer and piss, given the fact that it was a teenager's party, to be among people more like me again. 
It was like letting the mask slip a little bit, letting go of some of the formalities and tenseness that accompanies wealth. That, or being around 50 drunk teenagers and slowly getting buzzed yourself is incredibly liberating. It wasn't my first party, but it was the first one in a while. Bobbing along slightly to the loud music as I made my way inside, I tried not to stare wide-eyed at all of the people around me. They seemed so close, all of us crammed into that tiny hallway. I could feel the heat radiating off of all of these people around me, but it wasn't stifling, it was invigorating. To avoid accidentally making eye contact with anyone standing perhaps a bit too close to me, I let my gaze drift to the equally packed living room, where one girl was dancing around a clearly unconscious guy on the sofa. She drained her cup, threw it onto the ground and clambered on top of the dude. I looked away before it got any more explicit than that. Amina, who had entered the party just behind me, took a hold of my hand, leading me to the kitchen where Brandon, Bobby, and Ralphie had already set up camp. I tried, and failed, to banish memories of Daphne leading me around by my hand like this whenever we went on dates. I averted my eyes and swallowed, hard. Amina let go of my hand as soon as we entered the kitchen. Brandon was sitting on the counter, one foot up on the barstool, the other on the countertop. He had a red solo cup of, presumably, more alcohol. Ralphie was pouring two more cups out from a bottle he'd presumably found left out and handed one of the cups to Bobby. Do you two girls want one, too? Amina nodded but I politely declined. Oh, come on, sweetheart, Brandon said, pouring another cup, you can't have possibly had too much to drink already. Another cup won't hurt. Yeah, but... I protested weakly. It'll be fine, don't worry, Brandon insisted, you're not going to get in trouble, trust me. Behind him, I could see Amina narrow her eyes, but between the stress of the drug delivery and the alluring call of the party all around us and the painful reminder of how distant Daphne was, the alcohol was an offer I simply couldn't decline. I drained it as quickly as I could, ignoring the burning sensation in my throat. Add a girl. Brandon hooped, draining his own drink. He took my elbow in his hand, holding on a bit too tightly, come on, let's go dancing. What did you put in that drink? Amina asked him in a low voice, barely audible over the noise of the party, but loud enough that even I could hear the threat in her voice, it better not have been expensive. Don't worry about it, Brandon dismissed, it's just a little something to help the nerd have some fun. Fine. It clearly wasn't fine. Brandon took me to the living room, where people had turned the tiny space between the sofa and the TV into a cramped dance floor. What was that about? I asked him, leaning in slightly to make myself heard. Nothing you need to worry about, Brandon grinned. 
It probably should have been, but there was a fog settling in my brain between what was going on around me and my usual thought process. Instead of questioning him further, I just giggled and danced. It seems stupid now, but at the time, I wasn't thinking. I was out of my mind, and it definitely wasn't the two drinks I had that was causing it. I didn't care, though. I don't know if it was whatever Brandon had spiked my drink with, or if it was simply because, for the first time in a while, I wasn't thinking about Maddie, or her dad, or the police, or school. I wasn't thinking about anything other than how great it felt to be surrounded by a sea of faces I didn't recognize, how the table under my feet rocked slightly when I danced on top of it, how fantastic it felt to be swept up in someone's arms, even if they were Brandon's, not Daphne's. As he pressed an unwelcome kiss to my lips, my mind sharpened, briefly. I knew at that moment that I very much did not want this. I also knew that my entry into the gang at that moment in time was very tenuous and that rejecting the leader outright will definitely have me ousted. Even as I forced myself to kiss him back, I couldn't help but picture Daphne in his place. I wanted, so much, to be able to do this with Daphne. I would have killed if it meant that I could kiss her in the middle of a busy party like this and not feel terrified for my life. As quickly as the mental sharpness had returned, it faded away again. Brandon kept kissing and fondling me, but it felt a million miles away. It was happening to someone else, some other girl he was holding on his lap. Somewhere in the fog, I noticed Bobby glaring at me, but I couldn't care less. Now that I had power over Brandon, Bobby's opinion of me is the last thing on my mind. Chapter 88 Bobby was still sulking slightly as we left the party, Brandon's arms slung casually around my shoulders. It felt wrong, and heavy, and possessive, but I let it sit there anyway, the drug still causing my mind to be foggy and cloudy. It was Ralphie that pointed to a figure walking a little way ahead of us, mocking the way the other boy walked. Ralphie waddled, puffing out his cheeks as he did so, mocking the boy's heavy-set manner of moving. Ralphie laughed raucously while the rest of us shifted uncomfortably. Apparently, even in a gang, there was some sense of morality and a line in the sand and that line was making fun of plus-sized people. That's not. Ralphie, stop, Amina told him, if a little weakly. She was still glancing at the boy nervously, presumably hoping that the boy hadn't heard any of this going on behind his back. We don't do that. Also, Brandon, isn't that your friend? Why aren't you standing up for him? I he's not my dash, Brandon sputtered, dropping his arm from around my shoulders. I straighten my back and roll my shoulders back to regain my sense of agency over them. It felt nice. Brandon's behavior was, needless to say, odd. Something more was going on here. H.M.? 
But you hang out with him all the time, Bobby chipped in. I see you two around school sometimes, you look like good friends. We're not friends. Brandon protested, defensively denying and deflecting far more than necessary. Yeah, no definitely something more going on there. Oi. Peter. The boy whirled around with a huge beam on his face at the sound of Brandon's voice, pretty much confirming my suspicions. Perfect. Peter's smile fell away quickly as he saw the rest of us crowding around Brandon. His voice wobbled slightly as he tentatively greeted us, Hi. I've got a bone to pick with you, you o Brandon started a tirade of insults, slurs, and other derogatory pejoratives that I will not be repeating, not even for the sake of remembering this story. Ralphie threw the first punch, I think. It was hard to tell through the fog in my mind. Brandon joined in pretty quickly though, kicking with so much ferocity that even my heart skipped a beat even though I wasn't the one getting pummel. Peter crumpled to the floor easily, shielding his head with his hands. He wasn't crying, or sobbing, or even whimpering, and somehow that made it worse. I knew enough about my high school to know that Pete's suspected fruitiness was not the most accepted in Crystal Cove. It was the 90s, and California, so you would expect people to be at least a little accepting, but nope. Something about the way in which Peter was reacting to the guys beating him up gave me the impression that this wasn't the first time this kind of thing had happened. Amina held back as Bobby joined the boys' ranks, her arms crossed over her chest. She kept a keen lookout, looking this way and that for any adults that might come to Pete's aid. She gave me an expectant look nodding her head towards Pete's curled-up form on the ground. I shook my head, refusing to participate. Even over the tirade of slurs, I could hear her tut disappointedly as she gave me a reproachful look. So, with as much malice I could muster up, I nudged Peter with my foot half-heartedly. Brandon looked up at me with flashing eyes, mania glimmering in those bared teeth. It reminded me, painfully, of the white flowers at Maddie's funeral. And that was it. That memory, that connection, was the tiny golden key to the floodgates to emotions I had been holding back for far too long. Anger at Mum for abandoning Maddie, at the police for killing her, at the whole town for being unaccepting and driving me and Daphne apart. Sorrow at having lost my first and only true friends in Crystal Cove in the space of a few short months. Despair at my current situation. Guilt for putting Mum through all of this. Disgust at Brandon and how he somehow got the rights to my body. I raised my shoe, the taste of sweaty teenage boy still in the back of my throat like a particularly virulent stink that lingers in the air long after the farter leaves the room, and slammed it down on Pete's back with a satisfying whack, sending him rolling a little bit away. Nice one. 
Brandon slapped my back, only spurring my violence further. I refused to let myself cry. I hate that I let this asshole have a right to touch me. I detest the fact that fate took everyone I cared about away from me, one by one. And, until now, I couldn't do anything about it. Until now, I was powerless. But, in that moment, as I punched Peter over and over again, using him as an emotional and physical punching bag, I had power. I was in control, and that thought was terrifying. The fury eventually wore off, however, and I found my chest heaving from the exertion. I took a step back, glancing around at the people around me. Bobby looked aghast, refusing to look at me, or Pete's bloodied form on the ground, while Ralphie just looked taken aback. Amina had a face of concern, but not much else, and Brandon. Brandon was enjoying himself too much. Are we done here? I asked, looking between each of them. Brandon raised his hand for a high five, which I gave him. Come on, let's all go home before Bobby Goodshoes over here has a panic attack, he said, letting his arm fall over my shoulders again. I duck out from under them, unable to get the sight of Pete on the ground out of my mind. Actually, I forgot something back at Kyle's, you guys go ahead without me. Do you want anyone to go with you? Amina asked, because I can dash. No, no, I'm all good, I'll see you guys in school tomorrow, I bid them goodbye. They nodded, and slowly faded off into the night. Once I was absolutely certain they were out of sight, I turned back to Peter. Hey, dude, are you okay? I asked, extending my arm out to him. He flinched away, as though he was expecting me to hit him again. Understandable, given the circumstances. Peter, by the looks of his injuries, was going to be okay, I think. He would be bruised and achy for a few days, but there were somehow no broken bones or noses. Not that that diminished my guilt or my involvement at all. Why, was all he said, over and over again, as if asking for every single time I had punched him, why? I don't know, I replied, honestly, as I helped him up, I'm sorry. He shook his head, not believing his own ears. Pete scampered off pretty quickly after that probably not wanting to be around in case I switched into violent mode again. Fair enough. Welp. Time to go home, I guess. Chapter 89 Having packed and said most of my goodbyes last night, I decided to leave quite early this morning. My flight's not until this afternoon but between having to run a few final errands and arriving at the airport a couple of hours before my flight, I end up leaving the house while everyone else is still sleeping off their hangovers from all the wine they drank last night. I'll be back in a bit to collect my bags when the taxi gets here, but in the meantime, I have to make my rounds of town to say my goodbyes. 
As I quietly click the door shut behind me, I consult my list of tasks, as if I have to be reminded of them. To be honest, when I first got to Crystal Cove, I thought my leaving would be a joyous moment, finally having escaped and survived a holiday, but as I make my way into town on foot for what may be the last time, I'm hit by a wave of melancholy. It's as if twenty years of mourning the loss of something has finally caught up to me. It's too early for the bakery to be open, but I know I won't find Velma there right now anyway. Something instead pulls me towards the nature reserve. A gut feeling, maybe, or a guiding hand from someone. When I see a familiar figure under a tree, the tree, in the middle of the clearing, I'm not at all surprised to see that it's Velma. She turns and sees me. Neither of us says hello, or greet each other, or acknowledge each other's presence. I go and stand next to her, staring at the tree in silence. Examining the structure of the bark and boughs above me, I wonder what Velma is thinking. I wasn't there that night, and despite my best efforts, Velma never told me, or anyone, I think, what actually happened. We have the official police reports, but something about them feels off. I wonder if we, as a community, will ever find out what truly happened. I guess I'll never find out, not if I board my plane later today. I couldn't leave without saying goodbye, I say eventually, my words too loud in the air around us. I bite my lips slightly, adding, not again. I thank you, Velma replies, her words so faint I'm not entirely sure I imagined them. I appreciate that. Velma, I turn towards her, to stare directly into her eyes and grasp her hands between mine. Will you come back to New York with me? You know I can't do that, she sighs, stepping away from me, scrunching up her nose and pulling her hands out of mine, I've built a life here, and I can't leave that just because you asked me to. I'm not asking you to move back here, either. So, what does that mean for us? Nothing, Velma replies, her voice wobbling slightly. Tears prick the corner of her eyes, but stubbornly refuse to fall down her cheeks. It means there's nothing left between us. Or at least nothing viable. I know, I lied, suppressing the emotion. I'm sorry. It's, it's the sensible thing to do, but it just feels so awful. Velma flinches away at the last word. Yeah. We don't say goodbye. I can't bring myself to finally close this chapter of my life, despite everything I just said about it being the sensible choice, so I pull out my phone as I'm walking away and am about to send a text message to hopefully start at least some kind of sustained connection only to find a text already waiting for me. Do you remember the promise we made? I stare at those seven words for what feels like an eternity until the pixels themselves transcend being and become just floating squares in an alternate dimension. Of course, I do. How could I not?
Yes, I reply simply. Almost immediately, Velma sends two more questions, in quick succession. Is there a lifetime waiting for us? Are we making a mistake? I hate that I'm doing this to her. I hate that I have to be an adult and mature when making this decision. I hate that I can't just say fuck it and run back to her, not caring about any of the consequences. You will always be my favorite what if, I reply as if that's going to help the pain I am no doubt inflicting upon her right now. I wish I could see her face now, but I know we wouldn't, couldn't, be having this conversation face to face. I can't lie to her, not when she's looking at me with those eyes, but that's all. We. I type, before pausing to think. Do I really want to do this? It's the right choice, isn't it? I can't leave my job, even if I'm about to get laid off soon anyway. I can't leave my apartment, even if I'm about to be evicted anyway. I can't leave New York, even if I have no friends left in that city. Right? I delete what I've typed so far and instead write, it's best if we don't get back together. I'm sorry I add, feeling like the worst person alive. I'm hurting Velma over again, and there isn't a worse feeling in the world right now. Don't be. Goodbye, Daff. My heart clenches at the sight of my shortened name. It's not like no one else calls me that, plenty of people do, but there's something special about the way Velma says, or writes, it. Goodbye I ended up saying goodbye after all, then. This is my worst nightmare, how the heck did I manage to mess up saying goodbye this much? This is the dark timeline. My phone pings again, illuminating to display three words, I love you. A lump forms in my throat. I am transported back to over two decades ago, standing on the church roof, watching as the girl I loved fell apart in front of me, powerless to do anything to stem the tide. She's reaching out her hand again, begging me to give her permission to jump. I stare at the blinking cursor, waiting for me to repeat the words back, showing that there might still be something there. Even now, though, even after two decades, I still can't bring myself to say it back. After checking in on Pete, I headed back home to a dark house. The brain fog had mostly dissipated, but it was still relatively difficult to think completely straight. I slotted the key into the lock, trying to turn it as silently as possible. Slipping off my shoes quietly, I tiptoed towards the kitchen in the darkness. What time do you call this? A voice called from the dark living room, making me jump out of my own skin. I didn't realize you were still awake, I told her once my heart stopped pounding my ears, clicking the hall light on. Mm hmm, Mum replied dismissively, leaning against the doorframe with her arms folded across her chest, we need to talk. Oh, dear. Not those dreaded words.
Who died this time? I joked dryly as I followed her into the dining room. Maddie's mum? Some long-lost sister? You, if you don't learn to keep that attitude to yourself, mum snapped, closing the door with a sharp thumb click. I bit back the retort as I sank into one of the chairs. Where have you been? Just out, I said evasively with a shrug. Mum was the last person in the world I wanted to talk to right now. The guilt was still swirling around my stomach and the Dutch courage mixed with whatever drugs Brandon had spiked my drink with were making it difficult to think. Most of my energy was going towards coming across as sober, not entirely successfully, so coming up with a believable excuse was not an option available to me at the time. Where? With who? Mum leaned forwards, as though this was a police investigation, and who gave you alcohol? Ah. So she noticed. None of your business, I replied, slumping in my chair in an attempt to get away from her, if you really cared, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If I really cared? Mum glowered, further piling onto the guilt, who do you think raised you? Fed you, clothed you? I'm your mother, for crying out loud, no one cares more about you in the world than me. Well, then I suppose no one must care about me then, I mumbled under my breath, mostly just to hurt her. I was too drunk, too angry at the world, too full of teenage melancholy to care about who I was hurting, I just wanted someone to hurt as much I was. So many people care about you, V, I heard as I stared at the pattern of wood on the table. For a second, just a flicker of a moment, I heard Daphne in that voice. Maybe it was how she said it, or maybe the nickname V, but something about those words reminded me of Daphne. And it was intolerable. IT sure doesn't feel like it, I yelled, standing up abruptly, if I died too, you'd all get over it within a month like you did with Maddie. Mum visibly deflated at my words, placing her head in her hands, don't make me think about you dying. You're not the only one who's upset about her, leaving. You can't even say the words, I snarled condescendingly, I bet you'd already forgotten all about her. Don't take that tone with me, young lady, she half yelled, just about managing to keep her volume in check. It was almost satisfying to have her yell at me instead of walking on eggshells for the first time in a while. I don't know if it's having her finally acknowledge the impact I have on her, or if it's having some external force I can blame for feeling this awful, but something about it felt fantastic even if the argument itself was making my skin flare with discomfort and wrongness. I haven't forgotten about Maddie, Mum continues, just because I'm not obsessed with her death doesn't mean I'm not hurting too. I'm sorry, I replied reflectively, the bite dissipating from my argument as quickly as it had appeared, replaced quickly with yet more guilt, I don't I, didn't mean it like that, Mum. Am I even your mom anymore, though, she asked, more to herself than me.
She leaned over the table, staring at the table as she spoke. We used to be so close, you know? Mum. I could feel the rest of the anger hovering at the edges of my mind start to drift away as Mum continued to speak. You used to tell me everything, but now I barely know the names of the people you hang out with, Mum looked up at me, the corners of her eyes damp, before glancing back to the table, and what happened to Daphne. You two were as close as sisters, and now you're barely talking. I liked her, too. So do I, I thought to myself, too much. And just like that, the anger was back. None of your business, I growled, just about managing to keep from yelling, not like you would care anyway, you're too busy all the time. I will do that for you. Who are you? You're not my daughter, she snapped her head up to look me in the eye, you're barely even someone I know. I don't even recognize you anymore. Like I care, I scoffed, caring quite a lot. You need to turn your life around, Mum continued, at this rate, you're going to run yourself into the ground, into an early grave. Because you care so much, I replied dryly, rolling my eyes. I do, actually. Mum said, the genuineness in her voice shining through like a candle behind a flickering sheer curtain. Other parents would have kicked you out for drinking, let alone what other kinds of trouble you've been up to that I don't know about. My mind, rather unhelpfully, decided to choose that exact moment to replay the snapshots of the night. The cold glass rim of the bottle was shoved up against my lips, some of the liquid dribbled down my chin a little and the rest of it poured down my throat when Brandon kept plying me with more alcohol. The smile on Pete's face giving away to a look of terror when Brandon revealed his true colors. The whispered help and the sound of sniffling when I turned away, regret dragging at my heels. I don't need to talk about this with you. I yelled in response the shame making me hide the memory away into the deepest corner of my mind, resolving to never speak of the event again. I stormed off, stamping my feet on every step like a petulant child. This conversation isn't over. Mum called up the stairs after me. In a slightly quieter voice, she continued, as if unsure if I could still hear her, just temporarily on hold. Slamming the door shut behind me, I slid down to the floor with my back against the door. Tears form in the corners of my eyes, but stubbornly refuse to fall. I don't know if they're from guilt or shame or something else, but as much as I need to get the emotions out of me, the tears stayed in my eyes. All I wanted was for someone to come and hug me, to tell me it's going to be okay, but one's not talking to me and the other. Well, let's just say she was busy.